welcome to a special edition of Vanguard Court Watch podcast. I am your host, David Greenwald. Today, we are going back to the start. On August 8th, 2009, Vanguard Court Watch intern Royston Sim wrote, A former Davis resident was sentenced to 378 years and four months in state prison Friday at the Yolo County Superior Court. It is one of the longest sentences in Yolo County history. I got involved in this case just before the sentencing. I received an email from Ajay Dev's sister-in-law, Patty Purcell. Driving to Carmichael, I listened as Patty, Ajay's wife, Peggy Dev, and others explained the case to me and that Ajay Dev was innocent. I knew about wrongful convictions at this time, but I had never worked on one, and I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Skeptical at first, the facts of the case have won me over, over the course of the last 10 years. Following the sentencing, there were strong statements of innocence. For instance, attorney Michael Rothschild said the following, There is no doubt in my mind that Mr. Dev, who was sentenced to nearly 400 years, was wrongly convicted and is an innocent man. A representative from the Dev family said, It goes beyond reason that Ajay could be found not guilty on some counts, therefore abrogating the accuser's account of events and found guilty on others. The real victims are an innocent man who has lost his freedom, and is sitting in jail, a pregnant wife and young child who are bereft of their husband and father, parents who have witnessed the degradation of their son, and the many other family members and friends who have lost a source of spiritual strength, friendship, and inspiration. In a letter to Judge Fall, family friend Tom Grote wrote, The victim's claims are outrageous lies. For example, she claimed that she was raped when they spent the night in our Monterey home. I witnessed them sleep in different rooms in a tiny two-bedroom home with two dogs and open doors. I witnessed the girl wake up after allegedly being raped and wedge herself on the couch between her adopted parents. According to two blog posts from jurors, The phone call was critical to the findings. One of the jurors wrote, Yes, her testimony was difficult to swallow. If for her testimony alone, he would be a free man. The phone call is what put him where he is now. I am confident that we made the correct decision. Another juror. In the pretext call, Ajay admitted to having sex with the victim when she was 18. The exact quote is, you F me after the age of 18. That means you gave consent. So we have Ajay Dev on the line. He's calling from Mule Creek State Prison. And Ajay, uh, maybe you can talk about uh, your experience in prison and what it's been like for the last 10 years. Sure, David. Um, a lot of people ask me um, how you're dealing or coping in prison. I get this kind of question asked quite a bit. Well, of course, the hardest thing is being away from my family. 
the missing of a fatherhood to my two beloved young sons is the most hardest thing for me. But as far as dealing with everyday life in here, for my personal outlook, it is first off a tremendous awakening in the sense that the individuals around me are really part of a hidden America. Yes, granted, society has begun to wake up to the mass incarceration crisis. But truthfully, I was blind to it until I was part of it. You know, most of the inmates I have met are from foster care or second and third generation gangbangers or from a unfortunately broken home and a family or were abused in some way or form. But since being here, I have been able to see both sides, the worst in our society and the best of what our society aspires to be. There is a belief out there that all inmates say they are innocent. Actually, this is not true of the hundreds of inmates I have met over the course of the past 10 years. I think I believe um, only about five people who have claimed to be innocent in front of me. And of those five, I believe three actually are. The problem they face, and I have also been confronted with, is people don't want to believe a mistake like that has been made. There are no self-help groups available in prison for those people who are innocent. So I have spent my time trying to be of service to the inmates who need help. For instance, um, I created and facilitated a fast-track MAC program to eight individuals who aspire to pass the GED or college entrance exam. I volunteer my time to create lessons and exams, correct homework, and teach the class after my regular work hours as an education clerk. For recreation, I play soccer and actually have taken up a guitar class, which is challenging and a lot of fun. I do my best to stay in good spirits, but it can be hard at times. It is hard to watch people with enormous potential be denied the opportunity to reach that potential. But hearing the stories of others gives me courage to fight on. Some guys have been fighting for over 20 years. I realize I am made of the strongest stuff than I ever thought. I truly hope that our society and lawmakers realize how much damage we have done to individuals and families by sending people away instead of finding a better solution. I have moments when things become almost unbearable. Right now, I feel like I need a new life, a new beginning. I'm in a great emotional state. Some would call it bad. A sense of distance from all things. I feel trapped. Feel that I can't move on. I know I need to move forward into the light where I belong. The person that I am, my true self is waiting ahead in life, but I can't seem to reunite with him, reconcile with him. I feel like my passion, my freedom, the person that I am has been sucked out of me. This is not me. I've always been a social person outside, but in prison life, is a very lonely life for me. There's no denying that we all need someone by our side, someone trustworthy to love and to be loved in return and to build a family and a future. Forgive me if the words are not fluid from my mouth. They are in my heart, though. I can never give it. I can never give in to the enemy and his influence. I cannot allow lies to take over my mind. I must protect it and my heart. 
I must believe and be still because my strongest part will dictate my life. In many ways, I'm not doing well. Sleepless, sleepless, restless nights with tears on my pillow. My life has been very difficult and I'm trying so hard to walk through it with some sense of integrity, humility, and respect. I have seen in me, seen me survive and get past what seems impossible. Yet today I'm still standing, breathing, speaking. I want to know how to love and care as I was taught from very young age to be kind to others. My goal was and still is to destroy every argument, every speculation in my mind that isn't true, helpful, or healthy. To meditate on words and thoughts that is good for my soul, heart, and mind. I continue to work on this discipline to this day. Some days I'm good at it, other days I'm not. I've also learned that the battlefield of the mind is very real, and it takes discipline to win this continuous battle. It's difficult, I agree, but there's much to gain with this practice. And yes, failure is always just around the corner, but hope is always faithful to pick me up, dust me off, to try and try again. I wish things were different. I wish the impossible were possible. I had to believe that everything would be all right no matter what. I had to stay courageous, stay still, and expect good things. Perhaps partner with God and do what needs to get done, and then let Him do the impossible. Pray without doubt, believing, and always believing. I keep telling myself that trials develop great character draws us closer to God's plan for us and prepares us for the work we were created for. It's hard to believe that good comes out of horrible situations, but they do. Don't forget, hope is never lost. I keep telling myself, just take one step closer, Ajay, one foot in front of the other. You'll get through this. Just follow the light in the darkness. You're going to be okay. Remember, you're a fighter. Don't give up. I feel like a bird in a cage, eager to fly and to be free. In my brokenness, I search to find peace in God. In my desperation for freedom, I search to find my hope in Him. In my need, let Him satisfy me. In my pain, let Him be my healer. A few fundamental things I try my best to abide by in prison. Always treat and respect others like you want to be treated and respected. Do not judge any prisoners. Always be vigilant. Don't pick on people, jump on their failures, criticize their faults, unless, of course, you want the same treatment. That critical spirit has a way of boomeranging. Ask yourself what you want people to do for you and grab the initiative and do it for them. Prison life makes one feel very insecure. Have people from out, have people from the outside world forgotten me or don't care about me or given up on me? I need to be constantly reassured that they have not forgotten me, that they still believe in me. They are still independently initiating actions on my behalf, still actively pursuing everything and anything in support of my exoneration, still doing all that they can do. You know, I wish there were four more Sanjays with my dear brother, four more Four more Patty's, who is my sister-in-law. Four more David Greenwald. 
four more people like Ellen DeGeneres who always tells everyone be kind to others. Four more someone, anyone that can hold you just do, by, do my bidding. A whole lot of attorneys, doers, supporters, and everything else that's needed needed to help me get home to my children and get me through this ordeal. I should be home with my sons and family, not in prison, laboring over legal documents and revisiting the wrong done to me over and over again. A good friend of mine always reminds me to repeat this mantra in code. You will get through this, Ajay. It won't be painless. It won't be quick, but God will use this mess for good. In the meantime, don't be foolish or naive. But don't despair either. With God's help, you will get through this. Close quote. I have two young boys, age 9 and 11, who are fast growing. They mean the war to me. As you know, due to the nature of the charges I was convicted of, all contact visits with minors are denied in prison. I was denied contact visits with my own children for the first eight years out of the past 10 years. I could only visit with them behind the glass, which was extremely difficult for all of us. I have been granted contact visits with my children since 2017, which is very done in prison. Of course, I'm very grateful for this contact visit. I'm now able to hold and hug my sons regularly and regularly visit them with them about every weekend for about three to four hours. Of course, this is not even close to being enough, but I make the best out of every visit we are able to have. I never take visits from my children, or anyone for that matter, for granted. I try to make each moment as special and meaningful as possible. I'm a man who works hard. I have made it a lifestyle to set my efforts, my family, my friends, or, and those who need help. There are two precious young boys I call sons, counting on me to be in their lives for a very long, long time. I never doubt this truth. I have a father who loves them so passionately and fiercely that I'm fighting with all my strength and power to be with them, to be all with them, father and sons together. They may not yet understand the depth and height of the father's love because they are still young boys, but they will. I'm doing my best to be the father I should be from where I am. My sons are more than a reason to fight for my freedom and to keep on, no matter what. The road I'm traveling on is strange, difficult, and dark. Yet, I see that each step we have taken has brought me towards victory. Yes, victory. From day one, my loved ones have watched me fight to conquer my fears and enemies. In many ways, I have overcome these fears with courage, perseverance, and discipline. Friends who have remained close by my side, fighting the battle alongside me. In closing, I just want to say, I'm praying for acts of justice, love of mercy, and hearts of humility for all those involved in my hearing. I need to believe and trust in the invisible work being done behind the scenes by God, who will eventually bring me home to my children and to my family. Thank you. Thank you, Ajay. One question that I have is uh, there are many people that have been following your case over the last decade, and a lot of them don't really know how they can help you. Um, can, can you tell them things that they can do to help out? 
in my legal in the legal sense or does it go in prison? Either one. Well, first of all, um, I want to thank everybody who has tirelessly helped me from the day one, my team and my attorneys and all the supporters who have been praying for me. One of the things uh, they can continue to do is, you know, don't don't hesitate to write a letter to a lawmaker's legislature about the mass incarceration problem in the United States and especially in California. And, you know, to continue to uh, be advocate for justice reform. Um, there are many voices, many people who don't have a voice here, you know, and uh, I am fortunate that I have a supporter, that my supporters, it's not just about Ajay David, it's out many, many people who are in my, who are in my shoes here. Like I said, um, there's, in my opinion, you know, there's probably about at least 10% people just in California itself are actually and factually innocent, in my opinion. You know, 60%, I do believe they are here for their crime. They deserve to be sentenced. 30% may have received long sentences that they don't deserve, but the crime did happen. But those 10% are actually and factually, actually and, um, factually innocent. So I would ask, you know, people, 10% is so much. One, one innocent person in prison is one too many. Imagine 10%. That's a lot of people. And uh, let's continue to advocate on justice reform and, you know, voice out about this massive incarceration and a lot of taxpayer money being wasted. And, and you, know, you, know, you know, for the prisoners that come inside, that we can help is continue. You know, I know we don't have access to internet, emails, any kind of phone, so letters, writing a letter is definitely a big help for any inmate, a snail mail, just to receive a postcard or a card, just knowing that you're thinking of us, thinking of me. That gives us hope. Um, and you know, just keep, keep your prayers going for all, all those who have um, unjustly, you know, been denied from their family, their friends, their loved ones, and uh, never, never, never lose hope. And I just pray that you never stop believing in me personally. And uh, you know, there is a uh, there is a lot of information about my case outside, and uh, you can get you know um, ask people, ask the team member how you can possibly help, and reach out, and they will. Thank you so much for coming on, Ajay. We wish you all the best and uh, keep hope alive. Thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you for the time you have given me to, for this interview. I appreciate you very much. That's Ajay Dev live from Mule Creek State Prison. I was talking to him this weekend, and one of the points I made to him is that when he was convicted in 2009, we really didn't know what we know today about wrongful convictions. Yes, the Innocence Project had been uh, operating for a while, but the research that has come out from their National Registry of Wrongful Convictions has shown you know, there are 2,400 people now that have been exonerated. And for so long, people did not believe that there was such a thing 
as systemic wrongful convictions. And now we know that that is not true. So it's been a sea change that has occurred. Very moving words from Ajay Dev. This is Albert Biffarelli. In an interview that we did with him from 2009, about a month after the sentencing, he is a longtime friend of the devs. Listen to what he had to say. I would just like to say that um, I'd like to express all gratitude on behalf of the Dev family, the Easy family, the uh, friends and the Nepali community who were in support of Ajay's uh, innocence. Um, the basic trajectory of the case begins in 2004 when his adoptive daughter goes to the police and makes formal allegations that she had been raped by her adopted father repeatedly three times a week over a period of five years. Um, it isn't until 2006 that he's actually arrested for those uh, allegations and charges. And then following that, and I'm giving you the abbreviated version, in 2007 in July, he was actually placed in jail by the DA for an alleged phone call, a threatening phone call that he made to the father of the accuser, which was proven later to be completely fallacious. And then from that point on, it was just the preparation and the um, gathering of information to prepare for the formal trial that took place this year. And, and so I, I went to the sentencing, and uh, 378 years. Correct. Um, and and, and I, I guess part of what puts this into context, um, and, and we'll get into the claims of innocence uh, shortly, but, but, but just from, from my standpoint, you have a case, there, there's, uh, there's no physical evidence. Correct. Uh, there's, uh, it, it's basically comes down to he said versus she said and a pretext call, which we'll get into. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I just have a hard time with the sentencing, uh, just, just on, on that surface of it, uh, leaving the question of guilt or innocence alone. Now, uh, so, so let's get into how was this individual convicted? Because I think I think that gets kind of to the crux of the problems that you have with this case. I think in order to appreciate um, how the conviction was delivered, there are a number of factors, some of which are very, very detailed and nuanced, which we don't have enough time to go into today uh, regarding misrepresentation by the DA, improper investiga investigatory techniques employed by the uh, chief investigator, the judge's conduct in the case, but I want to focus in on the jury's verdict because I think that's the most pertinent and the most accessible for your listening audience. Essentially, you hit the nail on the head when you said that there was no physical evidence, uh, no um, corroborating evidence either from a direct or a uh, what we would call a relevant perspective to indicate that she had been raped by anyone, let alone the accused, uh, 780 times. That's what you have to recognize. Her allegations, and place this in context, if you accept her allegations as fact, she was raped three times a year for five years, a week rather, for five years, which 
If you do the arithmetic, it's 780 times. Essentially, what the jury did, in my opinion, was to completely disregard the exculpatory evidence that was presented at trial by the attorney of record for the defense. They completely dismissed and disregarded her lack of credibility, consistent with her lies and misrepresentations and contradictions in perpetuity under oath, also conflicting with the pretrial testimony she gave. They disregarded the lack of evidence that was presented um, to the court by the district attorney. They disregarded the fact that no evidence of trauma in the so-called uh, rape victim was ever diagnosed or presented at trial. And they hung their decision on a solitary statement extrapolated from the pretext call, which, by the way, was translated from Nepali to English and presented to the jury as an interpretation by Steve Mount, the DA. Given that scenario and that equation, that's how Mr. Dev was ultimately convicted. They ignored and disregarded what the standard of proof is in a criminal trial, which is beyond a reasonable doubt. And the burden of proof rests solely on the prosecution, and we believe that they did not meet their burden predicated on the things that I've just enunciated. We now go back to the 2009 podcast where we talk about the nature of the charges and the overall lack of evidence. To take hold of that in these blanket charges of three times a week for five years, there's little, if any, specificity as to when and where these rapes occurred. Right. So that she will make specific generalized statements about a particular incident here or there, but in totality, there is no specificity. So they're painting with broad strokes, which makes it impossible for the accused to properly defend himself against a charge that they're not specifying. And the, and the ones that were basically specified when she talked about dates or when she talked about times, uh, all, every single one of those happened at a time when they were with other people who absolutely deny that it happened because they were actually either in the room with them at the time or it was, it was a situations where they were in such small quarters that it would have been impossible for this to happen without anybody knowing. What I'd like to emphasize as well is that given the magnitude of her allegations, what I'd like the listening audience, for those who do not have any specific information about this case, to use common sense and logic and recognize that the DA produced no evidence that she suffered from trauma, rape syndrome trauma, uh, and he produced no physical evidence that she was actually ever physically molested or raped. Now, given those two things, as you alluded to, it's a he said, she said case, which means that it's based on credibility. Do you believe her allegations or do you believe his? When the accuser, the only witness in the case, lies repeatedly under oath, the jury is duty-bound to recognize that. Here we describe in 2009 the context of the pretext phone call and how that took place. Yes. And, and, and then kind of what was said and how it was said. Well, first of all, you have to appreciate the fact that the pretext call was predominantly scripted by the primary investigator in the case, Detective Herman. Mm -hmm. When asked under oath where his notes were uh, in order to substantiate how he helped craft that uh, interview on the phone, 
he said he destroyed his notes. So the pretext call was an unannounced phone call between the accuser and the accused in attempt to try to extract from him in conversation, unbeknownst to him that he was being taped, uh, self-incriminating evidence. So that's the basis, the pretext of, or at least the foundation for what the pretext call is and what it was supposed to do. In order to understand and appreciate the pretext statement, you have to understand the full context of the dialogue that went on for 52 mm -hmm. minutes. And let me allow you to let me al allow me to set the tone and the circumstances. First of all, the statement that was issued and the expletive that was included was initially uttered in Nepali. The statement was then translated into English. One of the words in the translation was consent. And after a thorough investigation and speaking with people who are born and raised in the Nepali community, they explained to us that there is no such exact translation for the term that was used in Nepali to mean consent in English. Mm -hmm. What the term actually meant was, as you, you say, say, or because you said. Mm -hmm. What we are alleging and what we are firm in our belief is, is that the statement uttered by Mr. Dev, in fact, is a rhetorical statement if you consider one other factor. He was referencing the allegations that she made with regards to him being responsible for impregnating her. Now, in trial, we also proved with medical documentation that he was experiencing fertility issues, so under no circumstances could he be responsible for the pregnancy. But you have to understand his frame of mind at the time of making that statement. He was responding to the allegation that he knew conclusively that he was not responsible for her pregnancies. He also knew that her friends were aware of the fact that she had three separate boyfriends and became pregnant. So his statement is a rhetorical statement with the idea of saying, so you're accusing me of impregnating you, as you say. If you look at the statement following that, the accuser herself is upset with Ajay mm -hmm. because she says explicitly, you haven't told me what I need to hear. And that was an affirmative statement, explicit statement, taking responsibility for impregnating her and raping her. So if in fact that statement was a definitive self-incriminating evidence or statement, why then would the accuser question and reproach Ajay for not giving her what she wanted? So you have to understand that it's a rhetorical statement made in a broader context with regards to the allegations of her saying he impregnated her. She used to let it into a, an, into a testimony. On what grounds? On the grounds that there was a few words on there that didn't match what he wanted to have them say. Well, that's not exactly what happened, yeah. but ultimately what, what, what we have to understand is that the judge allowed her to translate two specific lines in that transcript. Imagine the accuser being granted the unilateral authority to make changes to a statement uttered in Nepali to English. That's prejudicial on its, on its face. See, what happened was the DA in his closing statement or his closing argument was testifying, and he was interpreting the pretext call, the entire pretext call for the jury judge admonished the jury in advance of the closing arguments mm -hmm. that closing arguments should not be and should never be accepted as evidence. But he used it to weave a story 
and to influence and to inflame the jurors, uh, understanding that that statement was in fact self-incriminating, which in fact it wasn't. And one other thing I want to say is that I've uh, hand-delivered to you a document today about law enforcement manual for techniques that are used in investigating sexual assault cases. Mm -hmm. And pretext messages are not acceptable in every state in the union, but it is a very powerful tool in the state of California. Law enforcement has specifically said that in any pretext call, no standalone statement should be accepted Separate. as self-incriminating. Yep. You need to provide corroborating evidence yep. consistent with that statement in order to exact a definitive self-incrimination. So we now have on the podcast, Tom Grote. Welcome to our show. Thank you, David. Um, Tom, can you share a, a little bit about, uh, just briefly, about your background and, and how you know the family and uh, the alleged victim and when you got to uh, meet the alleged victim? Sure. Okay. Uh, well, Ajay, Dev, and I go back to the late 1980s when I first moved to Chico. I met Ajay. I met his brother, Sanjay. There were several of us that became a, a group of friends. In the late 1980s, as students at Chico State, uh, I left Chico in 1990 and moved down to San Francisco, but we kept in touch, and then I came back to Chico after receiving my master's, and now I teach at Chico State and Duke College, and uh, so we never really lost touch, uh, Ajay and Sanjay and family. I've been close friends with them really since, I'd say, late 80s, early 90s, uh, up until today. How did we get to know uh, the alleged victim? So Ajay uh, and his wife Peggy, uh, we learned that they were going to adopt a girl from their village. This didn't surprise us at all. Having known this family, uh, they were always giving back to uh, the village and to people in Nepal and to everybody that they knew. So we figured this was just Ajay and Peggy's way. And when my wife and I were traveling in Thailand, they coordinated uh, her entry into the United States with us. Uh, she flew in from Nepal into Bangkok and we were in Bangkok, so we met her there at the airport and then escorted her into the United States. Uh, then things just kept uh, as they typically were with with my relationship and our relationship with the devs, uh, with, with Sanjay, with Ajay, with Peggy. Uh, you know, we saw each other quite frequently. There, we got to know each other really well. We traveled together and um, and the alleged victim, when she was asked, uh, you know who do you, if you know if something when Ajay and Peggy said if something were to happen to us who would you want to take care of you who would who do you want to be your American godparent she chose my wife and I. So um, let's flash ahead. You were okay. not uh, allowed to testify in court, correct? No, I, I wasn't. Well, I was. It wasn't that I wasn't allowed to testify. I was told that maybe I would testify, and so therefore I couldn't go to any of the uh, any of the hearings because I, I was a potential uh, 
uh, somebody who could testify. But then I was told that, no, you know, we don't need you. And now I don't know what that meant. We don't need you, you know, but I, I essentially know they didn't want me to testify or I didn't get a chance to testify, however you want to say it. But you had um, what we could consider a very important piece of information in terms of what took place in Monterey at your home, correct? Certainly. What uh, what I learned that she had said that, you know, she was raped in my home in Monterey. I mean, that's, you know, that's, of course, a piece of important information. I feel like that is a specific piece of information I could have spoken to. Um, you know, it's just knowing the whole trajectory of what happened and watching her rebel and watching her want to be this kind of pretty radical sort of loose American kid and then watching Ajay and Peggy just trying to rein her in. I mean, I, we just, there were a group of us that just saw this whole thing play out in real time, which was a really slow process. And, uh, you know, I mean, and the thing was, and I'm sorry to jump ahead, David, but this is just in my mind. We were, I was never asked, nobody that I know that knows the family was ever approached by a detective was ever questioned. Hey, did anything weird happen here? Hey, have you noticed anything about your friend? Hey, did, never, not once. You would think that a thorough investigation would include talking to the people who were closest to the situation, but anyway. So I want to go back to this point because I, I think it's crucial. So she claims that she was raped in your home in Monterey, and, and you have evidence that actually contradicts that, correct? Yeah, I mean, the home that we had in Monterey was very small. It was probably 750, maybe 800 square feet. It had two very small bedrooms with a, with probably a four-step hallway in between them, big enough for a bathroom to be squeezed in there. And then there was a living room and a kitchen. So it was a very small little shoebox house. Uh, at the time, I was going through chemotherapy, and uh, it was I had to make several trips to the bathroom every night. So uh, we also had their dog, Raja, and our dog, Java, who were best friends, but they would go back and forth between rooms. So this would be, uh, so everybody was in a very, very close proximity with doors open. And um, to, to when I learned that, uh, the victim had said that that happened in Monterey. I mean, it was just as ludicrous as all the other claims that, that I heard her make. So it, it just, it doesn't seem like there's any way that that could have possibly happened given all of the people and the dogs that were in this very small space. And given, quite frankly, uh, being in the throes of, of chemotherapy and the side effects that that had on me, uh, I wasn't, I wasn't sleeping a lot as that was. So it, it's just frankly impossible. Yeah. That story, you know, is, is one of two that really stand out to me, um, from that were contemporaneous to these allegations. The other one was the accusation that she made that, uh, Ajay had raped her 
in the bed with Peggy asleep on the other side of the bed. It, you know, these things kind of boggle the imagination that the jury is buying into this and that uh, the prosecutors are are kind of eating this up with a spoon. Um, and it doesn't seem like, you know, they, it never seemed like the prosecution or the police did a thorough investigation. There was no evidence of rape when, when the doctors examined her. There was no evidence, uh, nothing to really uh, corroborate her claims. You know, uh, right. And, and as someone who didn't get a chance to go watch the trial, because I could have been a witness, my first exposure to the argument came in the closing argument. And David, as a social scientist, this is what I do for a living. Uh, there is a lot of research, quite frankly, a mountain of research on unconscious bias. And when I listened to the way that the DA was presenting his arguments, the way that he was using conjecture, the way that he would speak about the kinds of things that were happening in Ajay's mind, and, and quite frankly, the the racist stereotypes that he invoked about, you know, this controlling man who thinks of a woman as property. And I mean, he doesn't know my friend over the decades like I've known, and he doesn't know anything about him. He's using this, this imagery to shape uh, a perception in the minds of the jury. I believe that. And I don't, you know, I'm not saying that they're bad people. I'm not even, I'm saying that this is not happening consciously. Uh, but there's just a ton of research that supports it. And it's unfortunate, quite frankly, I don't think those appeals would have worked on someone with white skin. You know, if it was m myself and Peggy, I think we would have we would have been seen as victims in this case. I, re I really was uh, taken aback by the way, the approach that the DA took uh, in speaking about Ajay. And I think that contributed to the perception that the juries had. Tom Grote, thank you for coming on and talking with us today. Thank you, David. We now flash forward to the present. In 2017, a direct appeal was denied by the Third District Court of Appeals. The case then went to habeas corpus. Unlike the appellate phase, the habeas process allows for the petitioner to raise evidence not brought up at trial. Here are two key points raised by the petitioner. First of all, the alleged victim, in this case, admitted to six people, all of whom filed sworn declarations that she was lying and had made up charges because she was fearful of being sent back to Nepal, that she saw Ajay Dev as overbearing and, in general, had anger toward him. Two weeks ago, we heard from one of those petitioners, one of those sworn affidavits, the headmaster at the school in the village where Ajay Dev was raised and he testified to what the alleged victim said. Another one of those was a January 2018 Facebook message 
which was sent by the alleged victim's sister to Sanjay Dev, who is the brother of Ajay Dev. She said, quote, the alleged victim want to take revenge and get to America. The only way to come to America was to come testify against Ajay uncle. We do not know that he will be put in jail long time. Now, the alleged victim say that if she helps, she will go to jail and get deported. The alleged victim has lied many times in the past. She had no choice. Police say to her they will help if she testify for rape. We know she was not raped. We also tell her to tell the truth, that this never happened. But she's scared now. But this was one witness. Out of six, they all gave declarations. The jury had access to none of this during the trial. And the declarations by the witnesses are largely consistent with each other. Meanwhile, as we've already discussed, the key evidence at trial was the pretext call. As explained earlier, part of the problem with the pretext call was that it was in both English and Nepalese. Another problem was that part of it was inaudible, including the key eight-second segment of it. And Judge Fall made what, in my view and in many people's view, should have been a reversible and grievous error by allowing the alleged victim herself to translate it for the jury in trial. As translated by her at trial, Mr. Dev allegedly said on audio, quote, but you had sex with me when you were 18. Sometimes the word sex has been translated using the F word. Writes lead attorney for Mr. Dev, Cliff Gardner. The defense expert who translated the pretext call testified that although Ajay's statement was inaudible, he ruled out the alleged victim's translation because he could hear the first syllable of the word in dispute, which was incompatible with any Nepali word connoting sex. He notes, the prosecutor relied on the alleged victim's translation in urging jurors to convict. Now we have new technology. That technology has allowed them to enhance the audio from that recording. Nepali translator, having listened to the newly enhanced recording, determined that Mr. Dev did not state what the alleged victim claimed. Instead, what Mr. Dev said was, if that is so, why did you come with me since 18 years? In other words, Mr. Dev is saying, if he treated her so badly, why did she continue to live with him after she turned 18? In their response to the petition for habeas corpus, Yolo County Deputy DA Steve Mount, who was the original prosecutor on the case, asked the court to reject claims of ineffective assistance of counsel, but did invite the court to conduct an evidentiary hearing on the second claim. Mr. Mount writes, claim two may survive the untimeliness bar solely to the extent it actually asserts, no matter the statutory standard, 
that the evidence meets the standard for relief by the U.S. Constitution. He adds, an evidentiary hearing is warranted, at least as a prudential matter, as, it, as to the merits of claim two. Now we go to July. In July, the matter was back in Yolo County, in front of Judge Janine Baronio. The court heard evidence from a sound expert who enhanced the recording and the translator who translated the eight-second portion of the pretext call from Nepalese to English. A couple weeks ago, the retired schoolmaster, who we mentioned a few moments ago, from the village of Borea, testified through an interpreter. Under direct testimony, Mr. Yadev said that he knew the family of the alleged victim who came to live with Ajay Dev and his wife in America as a teenager. She grew up in the same village as Mr. Yadev, but did not attend his school. From 2003 to 2004, she was facing visa and passport troubles, and she returned to Nepal to deal with these. It was in 2004 that he testified that he had four conversations with the alleged victim. He was with the alleged victim and her grandmother when the grandmother asked about the allegations of sexual assault which had been spreading throughout the whole village. He asked if Mr. Dev sexually assaulted her, and she responded, no, nothing like that. And she indicated that things would be resolved and she would go back to America. A few days later, he saw her again, and he testified that the alleged victim became angry, angry at Ajay Dev and his family for the passport charges and indicating that she was worried she would not be able to go back to America. Then in a third conversation, she indicated that Ajay and his family are doing this to me. At this point, she said she would do anything, including telling a lie and renew the rape case that she had before her in order to get back at Ajay Dev. Now, Deputy DA Ryan Cousins, who has taken over, at least for now, for Steve Mount, took what should have been a one- to two-hour hearing and dragged it out for about six hours. There are all sorts of variables here. Mr. Yadev definitely gave him openings to explore. He inserted his opinions on rape, leading to the soiling of the family's reputation, which Mr. Cousins dutifully exploited into the question about being a motivation for the victim to deny the crime against her. Mr. Yadev gave an opening by opining about rape victims wouldn't hold their head up or talk so proudly. Mr. Cousins also tried to insinuate that Mr. Yadev was telling the girl to stay in Nepal and get married, and that was an effort to dissuade a witness. He also tried to force uh, open the fact that Sanjay Dev had paid for his flight to the U.S. to testify, and the money donated to his family were financial incentives for him to play ball with the Dev family. But it's a real question as to how much of this is actually going to make a dent. This really makes the core contention in 2004 by the family that the alleged victim had denied that there was a crime, was angry about the passport snafu, she blamed it on the family, and there was tension between Ajay and the alleged victim because of how she was conducting herself. 
She was drinking, partying, and sleeping around with young men when the family clearly wanted her to go to school and be serious. There were clear cultural differences between the American view of sexual assault and Nepali views that Mr. Cousins tried to exploit. But Mr. Yadev never really wavered in his core claims. Had this been in front of a jury, I think the petitioners led by Ed Swanson and Brit Evangelista would be more concerned. As it was, they made most of their points by lunch and easily could have stopped the proceedings before Mr. Cousins added another hour to the proceedings. At one point, Judge Baronio even allowing repetitive questions by Mr. Cousins, asked him basically, hey, uh, where are you going with this? And uh, after he explained, she basically said that uh, she thought she had heard enough of this line of questioning. But that didn't stop him. Mr. Cousins continued for another hour. All in all, the witness held up pretty well. Mr. Cousins, in order to discredit six accounts of witnesses told contemporaneously that the victim was making it up, is going to have to come up with a lot more than some kind of vast conspiracy. Then again, I wouldn't put that past him either. So here we are, and in a few weeks we're going to hear another hearing that will give us more witnesses coming forward. There are some visa problems. There are some other problems getting these witnesses here. But at some point, the truth is going to come out. Will Judge Baronio be willing to throw out a conviction and order a new trial in this case? I don't know. That's going to be a hard call. That's going to be the million-dollar question. Ajay Dev has been in prison for 10 years for a crime he did not commit. I am absolutely convinced of that. What I'm not absolutely convinced of is whether the Yolo County system is willing to admit it. For the Vanguard Court Watch podcast, I'm David Greenwald.